Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Season 2 of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville is a city of almost 1 million residents located along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean in northeastern Florida. The city is almost 840 square miles, making it the largest city by landmass in the contiguous 48 states. The only two cities larger are both located in Alaska. Jacksonville also boasts more than 1,100 miles of shoreline, more than any other city in Florida. Jacksonville was originally called Calford because of all the cattle herded across the St. John's River in the area. It was also the site of some of the first European settlements in America, including the first French settlement, Fort Caroline, which was founded in the summer of 1564. The city was named for the seventh president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. Prior to becoming president, he was the first military governor of the Florida Territory. But during his time in the state, he never actually visited the city that bears his name. It's always sunny in Jacksonville, where they get an average of 270 days of sunshine per year. But in 1993, the sky was dark and ominous when one young Jacksonville mom disappeared. When she reappeared 21 years later, it was not the bright homecoming her family hoped for, but rather a portent of the oncoming storm. Bonnie Pesciuto and Michael Haim were married on September 12, 1987, and moved into a home on Dolphin Avenue in Jacksonville. Both worked at a construction supply company owned by Michael's aunt Eve Ann and her husband. Michael was a manager, and Bonnie did their accounts. In November 1989, the two had a son and named him Aaron Michael. On the night of January 6, 1993, 23-year-old Bonnie had been planning to go to Evan's house to help plan a friend's baby shower. But at about 8.30 that night, Bonnie called Evan and canceled. Bonnie was crying and said that she and Mike had gotten into a discussion about their marriage and she would not be able to come over that night. The next morning, police received a call from a maintenance worker at a hotel located not far from the Jacksonville International Airport and approximately six miles from the Hames residence. The worker reported that he found a purse in a dumpster behind the hotel that had a woman's wallet in it. Jacksonville detective Robert Henson responded to the call and the identification in the wallet belonged to Bonnie Hame. The wallet still contained her driver's license, two credit cards, and more than $100 in cash. Detective Hinson drove to the address on Bonnie's license and spoke with her 26-year-old husband, Michael Haim. The detective asked Michael if Bonnie was at home, and Michael said that Bonnie was not there, and he did not know where she was. He said he and his wife had an argument the previous night, and she left the house just before midnight. Michael told the detective that he called his mother at around 3 a.m. and asked her to come over and watch Aaron so he could drive around and look for Bonnie. He returned home 30 to 45 minutes later and told his mom he was not able to find her. 
A few hours later at 7 a.m., Michael called work saying that he was not coming in. At the time, Michael told Detective Henson that he and his wife had some disagreements, but nothing involving violence. But he did say he'd noticed a difference in her personality and that she had been sad lately. Detective Henson decided to see if he could find Bonnie's car. Since Bonnie's purse was found at a hotel near the airport, he started there. And within a short time, he found her car in a long-term parking lot at the airport. He called for investigators to come out and process the car. And the first thing he noticed was the position of the driver's seat. It was pushed back much farther than would have been feasible for Bonnie, who was fairly short. The crime scene technicians also found a sandy shoe print on the driver's side floorboard. Investigators believe the print had been made by the last person to drive the car due to the print's pristine condition. The distinctive tread pattern was traced to a special issue of an athletic shoe, and it was estimated to be a man's size 10. Detective Henson also arranged for someone from Child Protective Services to interview three-year-old Aaron. According to court records, the day after Bonnie disappeared, Aaron spoke with a psychologist and said, quote, Daddy hurt her, end quote. Detective Henson believed that there was a fight between Bonnie and Michael and that Bonnie's body was removed from their home. Investigators reached out to family and friends to find out more about Bonnie and if she had ever told them about any marital problems. Michael's aunt, Eve Ann, said that she had seen her nephew treat Bonnie badly at work. And Kath, basically what she said was she looks out her window and she sees Bonnie and Michael arguing in the parking lot. She then sees Michael slam Bonnie's hand in the door of the car. So Evan tells detectives that Bonnie came back into the office crying and told her that Michael had gotten upset with her and intentionally slammed her hand in the car door. Bonnie's friends were interviewed and those close to her claimed that in the months leading up to her disappearance, she had been planning to leave Michael. One of her friends told detectives that Bonnie had given her $1,250 to keep for her for when she actually left her husband. Bonnie had told friends that she was looking at apartments as well as a new preschool for her three-year-old son, Aaron. Kath, the one thing that was consistent with all of Bonnie's friends was that they said she would never have left her son behind voluntarily. Within the first two months after Bonnie disappearing, her son Aaron went to live with Bonnie's sister Liz so she could take care of him. And basically what happened is Bonnie's disappearance split her own family. Liz told investigators that Bonnie's siblings believed that Michael did something to her, but Bonnie's parents supported Michael. And Kath, the sad thing was too, is one of the things Liz said is that after he went to go live with her, Michael would come over and visit Aaron twice a week. Aaron would pound his fist on the floor as soon as his dad left the house. Now, Bonnie's father's response to this, Kath, was to say that Aaron had been brainwashed to act like that. And I think the implication was is that he was accusing Liz of doing that. I agree. I read the same thing. Interestingly, Kath, and I know you had the same opinion, Bonnie's father talked to news reporters quite a few times. These were interviews that were broadcast on air, and he really did support Michael. In these interviews, her dad was very dismissive of any claim that Bonnie was abused, any of it. It was all... Michael did nothing. I thought it was very interesting because I think you used the word dismissive. Mm -hmm. That was the perfect word for these television interviews. I found it very odd that her father would be so firm in his belief that she had often left. 
I also thought it was interesting. Bonnie was only 18 when she married Michael. I thought the same thing. Yeah, she got married at 18. And what I thought when I saw the father's interviews was like, "Mm, okay, no Mm, wonder. I think I might understand that. Yeah. Bonnie's dad told the reporters thousands of women leave their families and husbands every year. And it's always a complete surprise to their families. It doesn't mean the husband did anything to them. He also weighed in on the shoe print that we talked about being found in Bonnie's car. And he said, well, the shoe print doesn't have any significance. My shoe prints are all over my wife's car and I didn't do anything to her. And then the other thing, Kath, is that he also publicly cast doubt on what Aaron told the child psychologist about daddy hurting mommy. Because he basically blamed Liz for brainwashing the boy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. About a year later, the family hosted a memorial for Bonnie off of Airport Road. This is where Bonnie's purse was found. And they were hoping the publicity would turn up leads. Michael Haim did not attend this event. But despite the police believing that Michael Haim was responsible for harming Bonnie, without finding a body or any direct evidence, they did not believe they had enough evidence to prosecute him. And as a result, the case went cold. Sometime before the end of 1993, Aaron Haim was placed in the custody of people outside of his family. His name was eventually changed to their last name after he was adopted by them. In 1999, Bonnie was declared legally dead. Four years later in 2003, which was 10 years after Bonnie went missing, her sister, Liz Peek, filed a wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of the estate of Bonnie Haim, as well as Bonnie's then 14-year-old son, Aaron. The defendant in the civil suit was Michael Haim. Two years later, in 2005, a judge determined that Bonnie's death was wrongfully and intentionally procured by her husband, Michael. Now, Kath, what I thought was interesting about this is that I cannot see any evidence that Michael actually participated in the civil suit. A lot of the documents that should have been available to the public were not available. So what we do know is that the lawsuit was filed and counsel for the estate and for Aaron filed what we call a motion for summary judgment. And basically, you put all the facts forward, which show why Bonnie's death occurred at Michael's hands. And then Michael is supposed to file an opposition to that, countering with all the facts that support his position that he did no such thing. From what I can see, it appears that Michael did not file an opposition. So the judge said, okay, as a matter of law, it looks like he killed Bonnie Haim and entered judgment against him. The judge then held a trial on damages. So we know that Michael is liable for the death, but how much is the court going to award? The court awarded damages to Bonnie's estate and Aaron as well for the loss of support and services of Bonnie Haim from the date of her disappearance to the date of Aaron's 18th birthday in the amount of $300,000. Damages for the loss of parental companionship, instruction, and guidance of Bonnie and for mental pain and suffering, the judge gave $15 million. He also awarded $1 million for Bonnie Hames' loss of prospective net accumulations, basically loss of future earnings, and he awarded $10 million in punitive damages. The total amount of the judgment was $26.3 million. Now, Kath, in a civil suit, a judgment is a meaningless piece of paper unless you have some assets to enforce it against. So in 2007, which is roughly 
14 years after Bonnie's disappearance, the Duval County Sheriff's Department executed a levy on the house owned by Michael Haim. Now, this is the house where Aaron was living with his parents at the time his mother went missing. And Kath, after she went missing, Michael only lived there for about a year. After that, it was strictly used as a rental property. So the title of the home was transferred to the estate of Bonnie Haim and Bonnie's son, Aaron, as partial satisfaction for the $26 million plus judgment against Michael. And what was super cool was that when Aaron turned 18, his Aunt Liz transferred title to the home exclusively to him. And she also assigned to him the total amount of the unpaid judgment. I got to hand it to this lady. Like she was doing it for all the right reasons. That's awesome. Yeah. After Aaron's 18th birthday, when he came into possession of the house, he kept it as a rental property for several years. Now, by this time, he was married, but he and his wife never actually lived in his childhood home. In 2014, he decided it was time for him to sell it and move on. But before he did that, he wanted to make a few renovations to increase the value of the property. According to an April 2019 article in the Florida Times Union by Eileen Kelly, on Sunday, December 14, 2014, Aaron rented an excavator and he and his brother-in-law started to demolish the home's backyard swimming pool. Now, Kath, this pool had not been working even prior to Aaron taking possession of the house when he turned 18, but he didn't want to spend a lot of money to fix it. So he decided just to break up the concrete and then fill it in. Like just demo the whole thing. Exactly. With the brother-in-law driving the excavator, it rolled over a slab of concrete at an outdoor shower. And when it did so, spiderweb-like cracks spread across this slab. Aaron got a sledgehammer to break up the concrete. The shower was one of the things they were taking out. But as he did so, he broke a water pipe just below the concrete. And Kath, I read in the newspaper that when Aaron was talking about this, he said, I broke the water pipe and all I could think was, oh my God, there's just one more thing to fix. Aaron and his brother-in-law started digging around in the dirt to find the pipe that broke when they found a plastic bag. Aaron kind of poked at it with a shovel, not really sure what it was, and it broke open. So he reached inside and pulled out what he thought was a coconut. It was dark. It was fibrous. And Aaron and his brother-in-law kind of looked at each other like, who's going to bury a coconut? But looking back in the hole, they noticed what was very clearly a set of teeth that had been just below the object they pulled out. It was then that they saw what they believed were the top of eye sockets on this object. They knew then it was a skull. So Aaron tried to call his wife and she didn't pick up because she was at church and he tried to call his adoptive mother. She was also at church. And so then he tried to call Detective Hinson, who, as we mentioned, was the original investigator. Kathy had actually kept in touch with each other over the years. Unfortunately, Detective Hinson did not pick up either. Now, while Aaron was trying to reach all these people, his brother-in-law called the police. Because this goes out on the police scanner and because journalists know what this address is, Mm -hmm. they all come over. So it becomes just a paparazzi nightmare. As the police are going through this hole, sifting through the dirt, they found a spent 22 caliber shell casing in the plastic bag. Interestingly, Kath, police knew Michael Haim owned a 22 caliber rifle at the time Bonnie disappeared because it was taken into evidence 21 years prior. However, since no charges were ever brought against Michael, it was released back to him. After an examination of the skeleton, the medical examiner ruled the death as homicide by unknown means. Kath, about a year ago, I had a neighbor fill in her pool and sell her house. And so my husband and I were joking that she did that because she probably was hiding bodies. Which, knowing that neighbor. Exactly. It's probably true. (laughs) 
I know. I'm super happy that she doesn't live there anymore. Everybody was texting each other like, yeah. I think you guys paid for the movers. I'm just kidding. (laughs) She was actually the neighbor that I found out years later had a hole in her garage. Like, I guess somebody like a boyfriend or something, maybe it was her son, used to work on cars. And so he would invite the kids in the neighborhood. Do you want to go in my dungeon? Isn't that freaking creepy? Yes. But what's terrifying is like my kids didn't even tell me that. To them, it was just like a neighbor being friendly. Eight months after the skull was found, DNA tests confirmed that the remains were that of Bonnie Haim. In August 2015, based on the discovery of the victim's remains and the evidence gathered at the time of her disappearance, Michael Haim was arrested in North Carolina, where he was living at the time, and charged with second-degree murder in the death of his wife. Charging documents said Bonnie Haim had been planning to leave her husband. In her preparation for the move, the document said she opened an account at Barnett Bank, but her husband discovered it and forced her to close it several months before her disappearance. And you know, Kath, I read that even though they worked at the same company because she did accounts, she had the bank statements mailed to their work. And I also read something that he exploded. He was pissed when he found the bank statements. Yeah, somehow he found it. Yeah. And the co-workers basically watched them get into a fight about it. Right. Also in the charging documents, it said that just days before her disappearance, she inquired about two apartments in nearby Orange Park and had deposits placed on them. She planned to move on January 23, 1993, when her husband was away on a business trip. She disappeared two and a half weeks before she could carry out her plan. Investigators said that on January 6, 1993, Bonnie Haim called a relative and said she was canceling her plans to come over that evening because she and her husband were discussing their marriage. Now, we know that person was Michael's aunt, Eve Ann. The document also stated that then three-year-old Aaron said in an interview, and we think this is the interview with a social services psychologist. Right. The charging document wasn't specific. Exactly. Anyway, he says, Daddy hurt mommy. And he also said, Daddy shot mommy. And also, my daddy could not wake her up. The charging documents concluded that Michael Haim was the last known individual to have contact with Bonnie. Initially, Circuit Court Judge Tatiana Salvador denied a motion to set bail for Michael, believing that the severity of his crime and his out-of-state residence made him a flight risk. However, Michael's lawyer appealed the decision, saying Michael was only charged with second-degree murder. Don't you love that? Only. Only. yeah. (laughs) And that if he was truly a flight risk, the detectives would not have been able to find him to even arrest him, which I'm not sure if I buy that logic, but whatever. The First District Court of Appeal agreed with Michael's attorneys and ordered Judge Salvador to set a reasonable bail. She set his bail at $200,000, for which Michael posted bond and left jail. Before trial, Michael Haim filed multiple motions seeking to exclude statements Aaron made during his 1993 interview with Child Protective Services. While the court agreed to exclude some of the statements, it also allowed the state to introduce Aaron's statement that he saw his father hurt or harm his mother. Michael also sought to exclude the introduction of the 22 caliber shell casing found when investigators unearthed Bonnie's remains. The defense argued that there was no nexus between the casing and the crime because the cause of Bonnie's death was undetermined. And investigators could not link the casing to any weapons owned by Michael. 
The court denied this motion, finding that the casing was relevant and highly probative because it tended to prove Bonnie's cause of death, where the shooting occurred, and was consistent with an injury discovered on Bonnie's hip bone. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After resolving these evidentiary issues, Michael Hames' trial began on April 9th, 2019, before a six-member jury. Kath, I had never heard of a six-member jury before. Yeah. But in my research, I discovered that in Florida, six jurors can be used for all criminal cases that are not eligible for the death penalty, which is second-degree murder. This was not. There are five other states, though, that do allow a jury of six members to convict at trial. And there are different restrictions put on those as well. Right. The number of jurors is state by state and statutory. So different jurisdictions get to do what they want. Different strokes for different folks. That's exactly right. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. (laughs) Prosecutors opened by telling the jury that Bonnie Haim was planning to take the couple's young son and leave. In the defense opening statement, attorney Janice Warren said the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office conducted a sloppy investigation, did not document their research, did not document their search of the property, and focused from the start on Michael Haim as their suspect, ignoring all other potential suspects and evidence. The state's first witness was now 29-year-old Aaron. 
Michael and Bonnie's son, who was three years old when his mother disappeared. When asked by the prosecution how the loss of his mother affected him, he said it affected his life in many ways. He lost his father, both sets of grandparents, and many members of his extended family. It made many things very difficult for him. Aaron testified about the day he and his brother-in-law found his mother's skull in the backyard of his boyhood home. In videos of the testimony, you could tell he was holding back tears when he was describing finding this bag with the fibrous brown item that he thought was a coconut. Then he talked about seeing the teeth in the dirt and realizing this was likely his mother. And he testified that he does not have any memories of what happened when he was three. He doesn't have any recollection of having spoken to Child Protective Services or anything like that. And what he said was the only real interaction he had with his mother was picking up her skull when he found it in his backyard. According to court records, the Florida Child Protection team interviewer who spoke with Aaron the day after his mother's disappearance testified for the prosecution. Journalists Mary Kikados and Valerie Edwards in a June 2019 article wrote that on the stand, the social worker read from a notebook and recounted her interview with then three-year-old Aaron. She said Aaron told her that his daddy hurt mommy and we digged it, the hole, causing social workers to infer Aaron was referring to the burying of his mother's body. She also testified that Aaron told her that his mother had been hurt and identified his father as the person who hurt her. Aaron also told the interviewer that it happened at nighttime. Kath, I am always amazed when people get information from children. It really is incredible. Like sometimes people underestimate their ability to make observations and communicate them. I mean, this kid was only three. It's impressive. Dr. Wendy Stroh, the medical examiner who performed Bonnie Hames' autopsy, also testified. She explained that she inspected Bonnie's remains in the location where they were discovered at Aaron Fraser's house and at the medical examiner's office. As we mentioned, in the dirt removed from the excavation site, investigators found a 22 caliber shell casing. Dr. Stroh testified that she did not know where the casing was found in relation to the body. Although she could not determine an anatomic cause of death, Dr. Stroh still felt confident that Bonnie's death was a homicide. Court records showed that Dr. Heather Walsh Haney, a forensic anthropologist, testified next. She concluded that Bonnie was buried before her body began to decompose. Dr. Walsh Haney observed a circular paramortem defect on the victim's hip bone. She could not be sure that a gunshot caused the defect, but it did resemble a gunshot wound. So Kathy, interestingly, one of the defense attorneys, Tom Fallis, tried to craft an argument that they did find Bonnie's body buried in the backyard. However, it was not Michael who did it. Rather, somebody else killed her and then moved her remains to the backyard in an attempt to frame Michael. Do you know, Kath, whether or not he was making the argument that she was buried after Michael started renting the house out? No, none of that came out in terms of time. It was just simply just because it was back there doesn't mean Michael did it. Right. You don't know when this was put in the ground kind of thing. Right. And then the anthropologist talked about the fact that they didn't find every single bone that belonged to Bonnie. And Mm. it could have been a number of things why all the bones weren't found. But defense attorney Fallis just used that to strengthen what he thought was the perfect argument. Right. Like imply that somebody had cut her up previously and didn't put all of her remains in this spot. Or that they moved her body after decomposition, inadvertently leaving some of her bones behind. 
In their presentation of evidence, prosecutors also brought an expert to the stand in an attempt to connect the sandy shoe print found on the driver's side floorboard of Bonnie's car with a pair of shoes owned by Michael Haim. One of the shoes, confirmed to be owned by Michael, definitely could have made the print. Even though this was a special issue shoe, there were still 10,000 pairs made at the time Bonnie went missing. And of course, no murder trial would be complete without the testimony of a jailhouse snitch. (laughs) But this one had two. Exactly. And honestly, I saw some of the testimony of one of the snitches and I was totally unimpressed. But anyway, that's just me. So according to court records, one of the snitches said Michael confessed during a chance encounter in the medical clinic. And so basically, Michael was going to the medical clinic at the same time. And I can't remember if his testimony was every week or every month, but he would see this guy. It was every week because he had high blood pressure. Okay, there we go. He said he would see the same people because of the way they deliver the prisoners to the infirmary. So this guy says, yeah, we were in line waiting for our respective medications when Michael confessed that he murdered his wife. (laughs) Yeah, because that happens. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And then the other snitch was a cellmate, and he testified that Michael said he buried his wife under the pool. Now, we knew that was erroneous, and it was also something that he could have read. One of the papers, I think it was the Florida Times Union, wrote a story saying that Bonnie had been buried under the pool, which was incorrect, of course. But the implication was, obviously, this guy got the story from the paper. But I'm sure the prosecution were using snitches because so much time had passed. They felt like they had to do whatever they can. Juice it up. Yeah, put whatever evidence on that they possibly could. Well, and there was actually no physical evidence linking him to the crime. No, there was not. Now, and this to me, Kathy, is a key factor. Prosecutors used a hidden microphone in Michael Hames' cell because the second snitch that we referred to was a cellmate. And prosecutors did not use a single recording made in the cell to corroborate the snitch's testimony. Both of these jailhouse snitches were known to have worked with police on previous occasions where they said the people they were testifying against had confessed to their respective crimes. The prosecution also introduced evidence that Michael tried to avoid the discovery of his wife's remains. So, Kath, as we said, he turned his home into a rental property and there was a renter that came and testified who said that her lease agreement contained a clause that prevented her from digging or planting anything in the yard and her lease required her to keep her two large dogs in the master bedroom whenever she left the house. That's crazy. Yeah. So she leaves the property and she locks her dogs up in her bedroom, which sounds like a recipe for disaster. Wouldn't you have gone and dug in the backyard? I would have been like, hmm, what's this guy hiding? Exactly. Yeah, no, totally. And with that, the state rested its case. Now, Kath, this is interesting. Although the defense told the judge that they were not calling any witnesses, Michael told his attorneys that he wanted to testify. The prosecution was shocked by this. And from what I read, this was actually a last minute surprise to his defense attorneys as well. I can't even imagine being the defense attorney sitting at counsel table and being like, bro, shut up zip it. You're not testifying. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you can't obviously like the client makes the call. But what a surprise. That's crazy. And actually, as you know, you could tell by both what his attorneys asked him and what the prosecution cross-examined him on. They were totally caught flat footed. Honestly, when I was listening to the testimony, I just thought, oh, my gosh, this defense attorney, all he's doing is bringing out the chronology. And at the end, did you kill her? Nope, that wasn't me. Okay, good. Next. 
Michael testified that on the night of January 6, 1993, this was, of course, the day Bonnie disappeared. He and Bonnie had a discussion. That's something we put in quotes. Exactly. It was a euphemism for fight. Right. It wasn't an argument. It wasn't anything stronger than a discussion. But they had a discussion the night she left and he could tell she was not pleased. Another euphemism for pissed off. So according to an article in the Florida Times Union by Andrew Pantazzi, Michael testified that Bonnie said she did not want to talk about it. So he went to his bedroom and he watched TV until he heard the front door close. Michael told the jury that just a few hours later, so this was around 3 a.m. as we know, he called his mother to come over and then he drove to the home of Bonnie's mom to see whether that's where Bonnie had gone. When he didn't see Bonnie's car there, he turned around and went home. On cross-examination, Assistant State Attorney Alan Mizrahi focused a series of his questions on this topic, asking why Michael waited three hours before searching for his wife, and why didn't he just call Bonnie's mother on the phone? Prosecutor Mizrahi said, your wife is making certainly a rash decision to leave your home around midnight without a plan. How come you didn't follow her? And Michael responded that Aaron was asleep, so it wasn't like he could leave him in the house by himself. You know, Kath, when I was watching the cross-examination by the prosecutor, what was kind of amusing to me is the prosecutor would ask a question and Michael would answer the question, but not the way the prosecutor wanted. And the prosecutor would just breeze over it. Basically, he was implying that Michael was a terrible husband because he didn't chase his wife out the door at midnight when, in fact, they had a three-year-old sleeping in a bed. So I thought the prosecution wasn't making a ton of great points. First of all, he looked like a young William Hurt. What was that movie with Marley Matlin like 100 years ago? Um, Children of a Lesser God. Children of a Lesser God. That was God. a good movie. Okay, that's what Michael Hame looked like. He looked like a younger version of William Hurt. But anyway, so I was actually surprised when I saw him on the stand. So we've had Kevin Bacon and William Hurt on the stand right. in two of our cases. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> So Michael said he'd never leave his son alone. And so the prosecutor said, well, then why didn't you call Bonnie's mom? And Michael said, I'd never call Bonnie's mom that late. Michael was so almost flippant and disinterested in what was being said. He kept saying to the prosecutor, I don't know what to tell you. I wouldn't call her that late. That's not even respectful. Yeah. And sometimes he would make these faces like he was thinking and he would kind of like twist his mouth off to the side. And I'd be like, oh, God, See, I dude. thought he was constipated. I'm thinking. <laughs> But every single answer, there was a caveat. Like he was asked a specific question and he would say, well, I believe it was this time, you know, but it's been so long. It could have been a little later. It could have been a little earlier. Right. And after two hours of that, the jurors would get real tired. He testified for over 90 minutes. Right. And to be fair, the murder was a long time ago, but it would be engraved in your brain certain facts when your spouse went missing. Now, remember, we told you guys that he called his mother at 3 a.m. to come over and watch Aaron while he looked for Bonnie. But the prosecutor suggested that when Michael Haim left his house for 30 to 45 minutes at three in the morning, it was rather to drive Bonnie's car to the hotel, dump her purse and then go to the airport and leave her car in the parking lot. Then he had to get back home. So the prosecution was presuming he would take a taxi. Prosecutors also brought up the fact that the morning after Bonnie disappeared, when Michael did not go to work, he also did not ask anyone at the office if Bonnie had shown up that day. When prosecutors asked why he didn't ask anyone if Bonnie called, Michael simply responded that he did not. He could have, but he didn't. And the prosecutor said, you chose not to. Both prosecutor Mizrahi and Michael's defense attorney, Tom Fallis, asked Michael Haim if he killed his wife. Michael's response was, absolutely not. I love my wife and I would have never hurt her. 
Chief Assistant State Attorney Mac Hevener presented the prosecution's initial closing argument. He told the jury that as humans, they should feel anger that a three-year-old boy was separated from his mother, that the little boy grew up and made his way in the world without the guidance and comfort of his mother. But as jurors, they must use the law, the evidence, and common sense to convict Michael Haim. Prosecutor Hevener recapped evidence about the shoe print found in Bonnie's car, telling the jury that the expert was certain that the shoe print was Haim's. There were only 10,000 pairs of shoes in existence, and Michael Haim owned one of the pairs. The journalist we mentioned earlier from the Florida Times Union, Andrew Pantazzi, he was actually live tweeting these closing arguments. He was basically fact checking what was being said during closing arguments. In this case, on the stand, the expert only said that Michael's shoes definitely could have made those prints, not that he excluded other shoes or not that he was certain the shoe print was Michael Haim's. However, the other thing that Pantazzi noted was that the defense never objected to this misstatement of the evidence. This happened several times. Oh, wow. Like, so the prosecutor was stating facts as though they came out in evidence and they weren't. Correct. Prosecutor Hevener also told the jury that when a wife going through marital difficulties is last heard from at 8 p.m. and when her car is located at an airport with her husband's sandy footprint and her body is located with a gunshot impression in her own backyard, your common sense tells you what happened. He asked the jury to consider three questions. Who had the motive? Who had the opportunity? And who had the ability? In defense attorney Tom Fallis's closing argument, he began by saying that Michael Haim is not guilty. Not because I say he's not guilty, but that's what the law in this case is. He said, you will find a lot of reasonable doubt. Then he pointed out that a husband's footprint in a wife's car is no big deal. It happens all the time and that the prosecution was stretching the truth and doing whatever it had to do to get a conviction. Fallis said the testimony of the two jailhouse snitches was insulting, as though his client would tell a complete stranger in a random conversation that he killed his wife. Attorney Fallis concluded by saying that even if the prosecutors are right that Michael Haim killed his wife, there is no evidence to suggest that it rises to the level of second-degree murder. Prosecutor Mizrahi concluded the prosecution's case by closing with a quote from Voltaire, To the living we owe respect, to the dead we owe truth. Mizrahi said Bonnie Haim cannot get justice, so it is up to us, the living, to find justice for her. After deliberating for 90 minutes, the jury of three men and three women returned with a verdict. Guilty of second-degree murder. Under the sentencing guidelines in place at the time when Bonnie was murdered, the recommended sentencing for murder two ranged from seven years to 22 years. And under the old statutes, Michael would get out of serving 60% of his sentence with good behavior. However, the state wanted to use current laws that had more severe penalties for second-degree murder. In order to do so, the prosecution had to prove aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt, such that the more punitive sentencing guidelines should be applied. So the judge held a separate hearing and witnesses were called. Aaron Frazier spoke at the sentencing phase, and he told the judge that at age three, he drew a picture of his mom being shot in the stomach. 
He spent years sleeping with a brick under his pillow, believing he needed to protect himself should someone come for him in the middle of the night. And when he was six, Aaron asked his adoptive parents if they could go searching for his mom. When his parents said yes, Aaron walked into the garage and grabbed a shovel. Aaron said, I have always known that my mom was buried. I just didn't know where. I tried to remember, but I could not. He told the judge he has been dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts since he was 16 years old. He said, some days are worse than others. When things get really bad, sometimes it seems easier to just give up. Aaron went on to explain that when his life got turbulent, he had this burning desire to resolve where his mother was buried. He said that when he was 18, he drove down a dirt road on the banks of the Nassau River. He said he had a shovel with him and he was going to look for his mom. He found himself as lost as he had ever been, but he said he was not lost physically. He was depressed and suicidal. Aaron told Judge Whittington that he did not know what a fair sentence would be, but he wanted the judge to understand this. Quote, Every day that Michael Haim was a free man, I lived in fear that he may come for me like he said he would. I was the one person on the planet who had the knowledge of what he had done and could stand in the way of his liberty. End quote. Aaron said that fear intensified when he found his mother's skeletal remains in 2014. He said the arrest brought relief, though it was fleeting because Michael Haim bonded out of jail after just four months. Aaron said that he would ask the judge that Michael get a sentence that would ensure that he did not have to be concerned about ever running into him again. Most importantly, he said he did not want to ever have to worry about Michael doing harm to him or any member of his family. He wanted to be safe from him, and the only way to achieve this was for Michael to spend the rest of his life in prison. Liz Peake, Bonnie Haim's sister, also spoke at the sentencing phase. She told Judge Whittington how the disappearance of Bonnie completely split up her family. Quote, Michael Haim somehow convinced my parents that I was the evil person for taking his son away from him. This turned my parents against me and my children and broke my heart. I lost my best friend, my sisters, and my parents in the same week. I had to build brick walls around my heart and couldn't mourn them. I had to stay strong for Aaron and my children. I couldn't say or do anything that would have the appearance of leading Aaron's testimony. I was only 26 years old, alone and terrified that Michael would fatally hurt someone else in my family. End quote. What a stud. 26 years old and just handling this business. And went on to keep taking care of him. Exactly. As an adult, once he was adopted out with a new family, she still sued on his behalf and got him a house. I have to assume that means she was a big part of his life still. I'm assuming the same thing, but what a stud. I agree. Liz asked that the judge give Michael Haim a sentence no shorter than the 26 years that he had been free after killing Bonnie. After hearing from the witnesses, the jury found that three aggravating factors were present. Number one, the crime was committed in the presence of a family member, Aaron. Number two, the crime was committed during the commission of tampering with evidence. Obviously, that's the destruction and moving of her body. Number three, the crime inflicted severe physical or emotional trauma on the victim and members of the victim's family. 
The jury did not find that the crime was committed in a heinous, atrocious, and cruel manner. However, finding three of four aggravating factors allowed the judge to use the new sentencing guidelines. Just over a month after Michael Haim was found guilty, on May 21, 2019, Judge Whittington sentenced him to life in prison. Michael Haim appealed his case to the Florida Court of Appeal, and on April 30, 2021, the court affirmed the trial's ruling and the sentence of life in prison. On May 2, 2023, Michael Haim's new attorneys filed another motion for post-conviction relief. They requested a new trial based on ineffective counsel at his first trial. Thanks for listening, and Patreon is coming soon. And a merch page is coming soon. Yes, yes. And we really appreciate the reviews that you guys have been giving us. So please, again, review us, download us, and tell your friends. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.